I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch loves you very much and would like to show you a video. Come and take our personality quiz. Come and take our personality quiz. Get the lowdown on our hoedown. We'll tell you where it is and then you take our personality quiz. There'll be somebody there who understands. There'll be somebody there who understands. They won't eat you, they will greet you and gaze into your eyes and there'll be somebody there who understands. <laughs> hey, Pete. Hi. Peter. It is our favorite time of the year. It's the most wonderful time. For some fear. For some For some spooks. For some With those skeletons jangling. <laughs> <laughs> Flesh combo peeling. When the devil comes back for your soul. <laughs> oh, wow. The blood will be curdling. <laughs> will be churning in yeah. your stomach because you yeah. ate too much of it. You eat too much, but it is officially... We love to watch kickoff of Spooktober 2021, uh, our our absolute favorite time of the year. And and actually something, Peter, you know, this is our sixth Spooktober doing this podcast. Something that like we, we get some feedback on this show. Most of it's really positive. But like the one I think consistent feedback we get from guests and listeners and other people is that like this is their favorite time to listen to our show. And I love hearing that. Uh, both from they love the Spooktober recaps. I think they like them more that we've separated them from these episodes. Um, but uh, but just kind of like love what we're going to end up tackling. And uh, it's definitely usually a month where, for the most part, really the, the goal of this show really comes to life. Because uh, holy shit do we love to watch. And we watch so much, uh, so much. over the course of this month. Yeah, yeah. And last year, Aaron hit 100 movies. I hit 80. 102. 102. I hit 80. Um, Aaron, how are you feeling this year is going to look? I'm not sure. You know, honestly, I'm not sure. Um, it could go – It could go. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be 100. But even then, like that 100 I ended up getting to, I was at 80 with four days to go and so, and took – the two last two days off work, I'm like, this is all I'm going to do. I think I could get there. So, you know, that was, I, I'm not like my, my, if you listen to the episode that came out just before this, you would know that, um, there's like 110 movies on my list, which is the most there's ever been on a narrowed down list for me. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm thinking 75, I'm thinking 50, but I mean, I remember when 50 seemed like the top of the mountain. So yeah, I don't know. Years ago I did, you know, years ago I did, uh, 50 and I thought that was crazy. Yeah. More than one a day. And then, um, the next year I only did 31, just 31 right on the button. My hit rate was massive. Um, I liked almost everything I watched in that 31. Uh, and then, um, last year I did 80, which was the most I've ever done. And I was like, still having a great time in a yeah. sort of way that makes me sick on the inside. Weird. Yeah. We we t- probably just talked about this on other episodes. So we don't need to get too, too far into it. But weirdly, I, I've burned out at like high thirties, which was kind of my typical range. Had some 40 years, um, 
And this at 102, it became like what I imagine is just like a rhythm that people get into. You know, like when you do something for 10,000 hours, like once you pass 50, I can watch six of these things a day. No problem. Because uh, I never really hit that. I'm so glad to be done with it uh, moment all into the last night. So, so yeah, uh, I, I love this time of year. and We always try to pick a special theme. I will note, we already kind of alluded to it, last year was the first year we used to do, we we still do, Spooktober recaps, where we try to watch as many new-to-us horror movies as we can. Uh, Those are their uh, separate episodes, again, this year, uh, with with, uh, not just one of our guests that's doing it with us, but another one. Uh, A a friend of the show, Ryan Bolin, is going to join Bill Fox for uh, some list comparing, uh, uh, recaps, kickoffs, and wrap-ups. So, uh, you should already be able to see in our feed the the Spooktober kickoff where we talk about what's on our lists. Uh, check it out; it's one of our one of our funnest things that we get to record each year. And then we'll have a couple of recaps and a wrap up throughout the course of this month. But we do always try to pick a special theme, and there's been a theme of horror movies that Peter and I have been talking about doing forever. I think we, when we talk about these types of movies on Spooktober, Peter, we're always like, these are our favorite types of horror movies. And so it's kind of crazy that I don't even think that we've done an, an example of this on our show that I can think of, um, let alone a, n- not done a theme around this in in five and a half years of doing the show. Um, and we're doing we're doing cult horror movies, or as, or as, um, or as Peter dubbed it. We love to watch. Would like to show you a pamphlet. <laughs> yeah, so we're doing cult movies, and we've we've really we you're gonna look at this, and you're gonna go, oh man, there's some th- there's some there's some cult movies they really should have done. And I'm gonna tell you, yeah, we had a lot to choose from. Cults and horror movies is pretty rich uh, vein, and so we did try to do a big cross section of those. And if you're like. Hey, why the fuck aren't you guys doing House of the Devil or the original Wicker Man? Uh, you're not wrong. Those are movies we should do and we will do. Uh, but we did narrow it down. Um, and we're starting with a recent one that we're going to talk about today. A movie that uh, Peter, uh, Peter and I love quite a bit. Uh, the Invitation. More recent movie from 2015. But a movie that even uh, having seen before and kind of knowing it's uh, a t- twists and tricks actually i think it improved in my estimation i i bumped this up a star rating just because it's so goddamn good so i'm excited to talk about that uh we're doing uh next week we're doing uh, our curveball episode uh a, a movie that usually only gets talked about in the connotation of movie riffing or worse movies and peter and i wanted to approach it just as its individual horror movie about cults that they tried to make uh and we're doing manos the hands of fate which is in some ways the first time i've seen it and in other ways the hundredth time i've seen it uh and then uh we're doing kill list which is one of peter's favorite movies and uh midsummer with uh a more recent cult movie and then we're wrapping up with our halloween special which is we will talk about later but we do have a nice cult theme triple feature for you guys as Aaron pointed out, there's like so many cult movies, so many movies involve cults, but one of the ways that we wanted to cull this month a little bit um, was A, movies we're passionate about, but B, we wanted to make movies that is in somehow talk about the inner mechanics of the cult, the inner culture of the cult, um, somehow depict some of the inner workings of the cult, as opposed to, you know, there's a million 
Uh, there's a million movies about, you know, devil cults made in the 60s and 70s, uh, where all you know about them is that they're spooky and they want to kill the main woman, um, which is like, you know, how I uh, eliminated House of the Devil, even or though Rosemary's I... Rosemary's Baby, or... You don't really learn anything about the inner mechanics of it, which is, you know, horror often thrives on mystery, but you don't really learn about the inner mechanics of it. So we wanted to pick movies we were passionate about. And also you get to see a weird look inside inside that cult, um, which begged um, <laughs> begged us to do uh, Midsummer, where uh, the cult doesn't look very much like, uh, you know, a typical movie cult, but it's definitely still a horror movie. Uh, the Invitation, where um, the cult is just, they're just friends. They just Yeah, they're openly they a cult, you. right? Like, they're, they're like, yeah. we're a cult. Yep, Here's but it's really pitch. working for us, and we want to share our cult with you. Um, yes. I mean, Manos even explains it, too, right? They're like, yeah. look. There's a Manos is about like inner turmoil and jealousies within the um, it's not really about anything, but it's about winning a bet. Um, but it's about the inner <laughs> turmoils and, and jealousies of a, a, a group of uh, sister wives that belong yeah. to a, a, you know, a messianic cult figure. Um, and then on a metatextual level, it's about toxic male pride. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's about it's about men who are willing to exploit a bunch of labor, uh, not file their copyright on time uh, just to win a bet with a Hollywood screenwriter. Yeah. Um, you so big yeah. time in me. You big time in me? You wrote the Dirty Dozen or whatever he wrote? How dare you? Uh, in, in the Heat of the Night. Oh, that's right. Um, he did write uh, Perry Mason. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. You big time um, in me, screenwriter, in the Heat of the Night? Uh, I'll go in the yeah. desert right now! <laughs> uh, but we'll talk more about that next week. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, but so tonight we're talking about The Invitation, which is our second Karen Kusama movie after Jennifer's Body, a movie that Peter was so excited to have Bill Fox watch this spooktober, he put it on the list of 10 movies he sent me twice. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, this is, uh, this is the, the second movie she is so different than Jennifer's Body. Uh, just in terms of tone and everything else, and it really just uh, it, it it feels it's one of those movies that popped up on Netflix a few years ago that like didn't quite get I think the kind of it got positive reviews, but it's one of those things where you saw a lot of three and a half, four out of five stars. This is a really nice uh, slow burn and stuff like that. You should check it out on Netflix. That I feel like a lot of horror movies get review wise that end up having me leave the movie going oh yeah that had some creepy moments and ultimately rating it three three and a half stars and and moving on from it i'm thinking of stuff like i am the pretty things that live in the house or stuff like that like that kind of slow burn atmospheric talky horror movie is something that because of all the different ways to release horror movies is very popular and in vogue and they end up getting these kind of like the positive reviews a lot of times from first time screenwriters or directors or stuff like this. But, you know, Peter, we, we've talked about them as almost like the way to really sink your spooktober watching because a lot of times if you watch like three or four of them, they're just kind of so samey and so slow burny 
that you end up just kind of leaving feeling like, oh, yeah, that was okay. I I think of like Relic, which I watched last year, which got a lot of really good reviews. And in a vacuum, I may have enjoyed more, but like in a Spooktober mix, just ends up kind of uh, sinking it. I know I felt that same oh, way yeah. about stuff D- like... Double, doubled for the Relic last year. Yeah. Beautif- beautifully made and shot movie, but like it's just it, in the middle of a Spooktober mix. It's like, I'm already watching like two other movies that look and feel exactly like this. That are just like this. I know. Um, and I, I think you and I have even uh, had a couple debates. I, I felt that way about Dark Song, which I know you ended up loving. But I think you would even admit that, like, that's a movie that is is one of these movies, right? Like, it is yes. a it is a slow burn. I actually – I got to say – so, I, I watched this, like, on – I wasn't, like, excited. I wasn't, like, foaming at the mar- ma- mouth to see this movie. I saw it and I really, really liked it. And I remember – uh, recommending it to a few people, I think like it made my like honorable mentions that I made at the time before I had a podcast for like you know uh, favorite movies of that year, and then I haven't watched it since. And rewatching it this time, I was like, "Holy shit, this movie is so goddamn good!" And it is not. I actually think that idea of like it does have a slow burn. But it's not the same type of slow burn as like a relic or a dark song or a canal or whatever else you want to uh, – whatever uh, – many, many, many other examples you want to throw out there. It is a slow burn where there's almost no mystery. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was something that reviewers uh, complained. The movie was well-reviewed, but reviewers complained about it. It was like sort of like uh, Jack Torrance and The Shining thing where it was like, well – they say they're in a cult in the first 20 minutes, and then at the end of the movie, they end up being in a cult. You know, like Jack Torrance looks crazy at the beginning of the movie, and at the end of the movie, he ends up being crazy. Yeah, and I and I think that that was the thing that um, I guess I – not that I took away the first time, but, but it, you are doing a little bit of that like – there's a few – there's a few fake outs that it might not be the type of cult that you're you're thinking of or just is our main character – does he have it right at the wrong time, right? Like does – is he is he going to uh, seem seem like the crazy one even if ultimately he is right and, it, you know, he's not going to have a chance to kind of have an I told you so moment because of how, how big and over the top he's getting while everyone's kind of accepting what's going on, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot as we get into this. Um, but I actually like rewatching it and knowing where the movie was going. Peter, you and I exchanged some texts and we're like almost a little – I watched it a little bit before you and I think your first concern – I was like, holy shit. Like the invitation is like – somehow even better the second time around and you i think texted back something about like oh good i was worried that without the kind of like surprise of the ending (laughs) um or where it was going that um that it was going to lose some of its punch and if anything i actually think it gains punch i think not even needing to even remotely worry about where the movie's going you really are able to absorb all of the performances and the little moments and the trauma and the pain and also like all the weird awkward friend interactions that the movie is is built around that kind of get a little bit smoothed over when you're more like okay but where's this going yeah yeah i think we're actually just thinking about the month um i wouldn't say that about manos but i'd say that about uh kill list and midsummer 
uh, Midsommar or whatever. Um, by the time we record that episode, I will have nailed down a pronunciation. Um, is that... Uh, Midsommar. <laughs> Midsommar. We'll just get more Scandinavian. Yeah. I, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Um, I'll play us a We Love to Watch theme song on like a glockenspiel or something. Um, Sc- Scandinavian, one of the few accents that uh, you can do and... and not offend anyone that matters. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> yes, we find we find this very funny that you are doing this this accent of ours. This, we find this very funny. Oh, because we're so white people. <laughs> we are. We are very game. We're very uh, cultured, and we have <laughs> a sense of humor here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the the that's a theme that's going to be in uh, Midsummer and Kill List. Um, is that. You know, you wonder, you're like, will this movie on a repeat watch still have the same punch once you know where it's going? Uh, and I think apps apps are fucking lootly because <laughs> good screenwriters know where they're going. Um, yeah. Or at least or at least directors interpreting a good script know where they're going. So they know how to um, lay those tension points in a way that you're, you're going to be emotionally connected as you go along to the character. So it's not... A situation like um, Usual Suspects has this problem. And, and, and the, the, the reason I always cite why Usual Suspects doesn't work on rewatch is because I'm not emotionally attached to pretty much any character. There's no protagonist for me to really give a shit about. I don't know what anyone's motivations are. So, like, rewatching the movie, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're like, this is an interesting mystery in a vacuum. Um, but... Once I've solved the mystery with you, I don't care about the characters going through the mystery that much. I, I really don't. Yeah. Um, it's like a little scary when Kaiser Soze is like closing his fist on certain characters, you know? But yeah. um, it's not uh, – this is not a situation where um, – this is not a situation like The Invitation where <clears throat> I – me knowing where it ends actually makes it a lot more tense because I'm going through each emotional checkpoint with this character. Yeah. He's trying to calm himself down. He's very relatable. Like, he makes a lot of wise decisions. He didn't start drinking until late in the movie. He um, he drove his own car. Like, he makes a lot of wise prote- horror protagonist decisions uh, that yeah. we can discuss more later that, like – and he's he's constantly bucking against this prison that is building around him but nobody else seems to notice yeah and that tension gets so much better on on you know watch number two or three well and that's why the thing that i really love about what this movie's doing that i actually can't think of an equivalent it's a movie where we already talked about the cult is really front and center for, like aggressively so for a dinner party reunion they are bad cult recruitants in that like they they haven't even made it to the dinner table, right? Like they're in the entryway couch as people are walking in and are like, "Hey, want to see a dead body?" Um, <laughs> you know, like you've got to let the party really do that. <laughs> I know you gotta you gotta let some things progress. Let people have a couple drinks of alcohol, and then the and then like uh, and then the second they like get over their first like want to see a dead body, and everyone's like. Why? Why did you just? Sh- I just walked into your house. You showed me a dead body. Then they're like, "Okay, everyone, calm down. Let's play a game where someone says how they killed their wife." <laughs> Not sorry about it. It's like, hold on. Like, so they're really bad about it. So it. So <laughs> that reminds me of. That reminds me of me uh, in making small talk in a work meeting that I'm running. <laughs> yeah. So you you do have you have the cult front and center, right? Like they don't they don't make any qualms about the fact that. 
this this is a this is a cult. They they name what it is. People in this universe recognize it as like something that they've heard about from people they work with and other acquaintances, and they kind of know what kind of program it is, and they know it's a cult. It's also a movie where normally if you have a cult front and center like that, you're watching a movie about people being sucked into that cult, right? Like you you um i don't i don't mean to use like the sacrament or something like that but that's that's a good example of a movie where uh the cult is like it's about how the cult is supposed to be this like loving thing and it degrades and so you're following a bunch of people for the most part that are sucked into it or that's a common horror trope right like the the investigator who goes to investigate the cult ends up either themselves or someone that they're close to or investigating with gets kind of sucked up by its message. And this is a movie where the cult is front and center, walking through what it means to them and why they're using it in a way that, like, touches everyone in the group. At no point does anyone else in the group have any interest in joining the cult, right? Like, it's all it, – nothing they're doing to try to bring people in is is working, but it's this weird dichotomy where – because these people are using it to process a trauma, um, people are g- giving them a lot of space. And because in any – you know, the the characters talk about this is – we haven't seen each other all in the same place for two years. We used to be really close till this trauma happened. And like we know that tonight's going to be painful. So they're giving a lot of space for weird let's see a dead body and other stuff because they just recognize that like tonight is a crucible that they need to pass through. But what that does and what I think ultimately why the movie is like so – good on rewatch you get to see the attempted like machiavellian manipulations that just constantly fall flat on their feet and you can kind of see them for for what they are and like the way like there there is something interesting about like movies where or art where the gaslighting is immediately known by everyone as gaslighting. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead, but there's this point in the movie where to try to bring kind of everything back um, when there's when they do one of their like cult aggressions, when they're like, hey, we're going to bring into a weird, weird world without your without your consent and you're going to hear some stuff that's going to be terrible and ruin your night. And then people get upset and um, the, the new husband of the protagonist's ex-wife, uh, what's his name? Played by the uh, guy David. David. Played by the uh, the guy from uh, Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, yeah. That guy was also in a in a, another cult movie called The Other Lamb, where he plays essentially a um, a messianic figure. And you can, if you can imagine that character with long hair, like he has in yeah. Game of Thrones, you can kind of probably see the Jesusy look. Yeah. He's got he's got a good cheesy look, and it, it pairs well with like uh, Logan Marshall Green too. Who like you can see why you can see why uh, she was attracted to both because they they both have like good bad they have like goofus and gallant Jesus vibes. That's always been my joke about Oedipal complexes is that um, she was just attracted to a certain type. Yeah, um, it's like she was attracted to the dad, and then oh well, you know, it's also the dad's t- the same type as the dad, the son. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a point where everyone's like freaking out and he does the thing where he he tries to calm everyone down by saying, OK, fine, fine. But I think 
we're, we all, you know, the thing about being humans is that we're all lost, right? We can all agree on that. And it's like saying it, it, this is something that like actual religions do too that really bother me, where they like say shit like, well, we're all lost. Like, okay, saying that all humanity is lost is it like, is a big statement that um, not everyone would agree with unless they're part of your cult. And so the idea of like trying to bring everyone back to the center by saying some other like cult mantra shit and then doing the gaslighting thing of like, obviously this is, this is like me saying that like we need air and the sky is blue. Like we're all lost, right? <laughs> okay. We can all agree on that. And like that, those kind of like little micro and macro aggressions of like this cult attempt of gaslighting and the way that every time it's really like presented for what it is in this movie, except that you have a bunch of characters who at the, as far as they know, are not literally trapped, but are trapped by social conventions and not wanting to impede like trauma recovery. And like a lot of like generally good stuff makes so many of these moments in this movie just absolutely fascinating. I, Oh yeah, the fact that the fact that David unlocks the main door at when he's challenged. Yeah. And, and and then at that point you realize you know, you're early in the movie, there's no confirmed threat. Pruitt isn't even there, big scary stranger who's going to stand behind them. Yeah. Um John Carroll Lynch being terrifying. Um at that point like y- the movie is making very clear that this is a bit of a social trap. And yeah. that's and that's like how cults operate, right? Is that they they um, they they depend on your sense of um, human uh, community, your basic human empathy, your basic uh, fear of uh, acting antisocial. Um, and I feel like we should start every, or you know, we should spend some time at the beginning of every episode this month, like just defining what's what, the cult. That's a great. What is great the cult, idea. and what techniques are they using? And I think you identified what makes the movie so fascinating, what makes the movie work so well, and that's that this is actually, uh, I actually think this is a pretty believable group of like late thirties friends who for <clears throat> not just because of a traumatic event, but also because they're older, they're busier, they don't see each other as much. Yeah. You know, it seems like maybe, you know, uh, this couple maybe hangs out with this lady every so often, but like as a group, they haven't all been together since the death of the protagonist's son, Will's son, uh, Will and Eden's son. Um, They haven't all really been together since then. And they are like, they're kind of coming as like a, an epilogue to the funeral. Like they're, they're kind of coming to like, exercise some some remaining uh emotions that they they um that are left in them there's a thing that happens in social interactions with people that you care about or you like you want to at least either impress or not come out the bad guy where like you'll go a little further with old friends like yeah your sense of uh that your sense of uh, abandonment or I'll get the, f- I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like y- y- that, um, that drive is, is dulled because your drive in, in not feeling like a weirdo or with uh, bad social etiquette um, will keep you, keep your feet firmly in place. And I've been in, I've been in plenty of situations with old friends at, where I'm like, yeah, I really should go home. I'm not doing cocaine with you. <laughs> okay. 
And then an hour later, somehow I'm still like on his couch or I'm going to another bar with him or whatever. And it's 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 not even this person's fault necessarily because he's not like a cult or whatever or, the, or this woman's fault necessarily. It's a cult, it's a cult of one. <laughs> <laughs> a guy, I mean, a guy who really likes cocaine is a cult of one. A little bit. Yeah. He wants everyone to join his very short-lived cult. Yeah. Um, and the dues are owed very quickly. But my point is that like even in small scale, low stakes interactions like that – if you've known someone for a long time, your feet end up getting stuck in place or, or or your feet end up getting locked in step with them in a way that like you're like, I'm having a bad time. I'm actually making it clear I'm having a bad time, but I'm not going to like do the dramatic action of going home. Yeah. That's, that's socially rude. Well, and I, I think the other reason why that is, I think it's true, but I think the other reason why that is, is that people that you've known for a long time or especially knew you when you were younger hold – some some level of I don't want to say power over you, but like the, you you they do hold like debts over your head, and I don't mean they like do this literally. Like they, I mean I guess some people probably do, but there's this like if you are around someone that you haven't seen in a long time, and maybe they're maybe it is like those microaggressions, like oh hey this my friend from high school is still making misogynist or racist jokes. Or something like that. And and you, you know, with someone new, maybe more likely to go, uh, this person sucks, right? Like, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to be friends with them. <laughs> but there is a little bit of like, well, can I really? When know? I met my wife in college, yeah. there was a lot of like, why do you hang out with this person? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, because you, you have those things where it's like. I mean, he, I guess maybe he always used to do that, and I probably laughed at a few of them. And I like, am I am I really? I haven't seen this guy in ten years. I really am going to call him out for something that, you know, like you you you. That sometimes is your way of thinking. It's like, am I going to like you know? Am am I going to hold this friendship to the to the same area I would hold current friendships? with or like yeah this guy seems like he sucks but remember when he lied you know to helped you um helped you lie to your parents so that you wouldn't get in trouble and backed you up in a bad situation like you have all these things that go back all these years that you kind of hold over like hey like you know I, I, this I, i'm not close enough with this person anymore i haven't seen him in a while like now's not the time to start giving them a morality lesson or an ultimatum because it doesn't I, I don't like uh, it's not your job a, to fix them it's not my job to fix them but also like i don't have the current cachet with them and the and like i owe them like a free pass and that's like very very uh you know e it's definitely easy for the person uh that then doesn't have to confront anything but that's like you know in some ways very like a compelling a compelling way to behave like what's the point of me doing this i'm here to see them i'm not they're not part of my life anymore or i'm trying to get them back in my life like now is not the time to confront their drinking or the, what they're saying or you know the way that they weirdly discipline their kids that i've never seen them have before like all those all that shit and like this is a movie that thrives on that like yes eden is being weird like yes the way they're behaving is strange yes these two add-ons to the party of our big reunion don't make any sense but like if i make a big deal out of it maybe i don't see them again for a few years like i need to work my way back in and also they've been through so much and we've been through so much together and blah 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 and so it allows these like 
you know, I I keep calling them microaggressions, but they're like, it's not, they're like macroaggressions, (laughs) like locking the door in full view, showing people dead bodies and all the other stuff is like overtly aggressive that only the confident, only cult people can be that confident with because, or like anyone who like is uh is that fervent in a belief like well of course you'll see it my way because i saw it this way yeah yeah and also being in a cult that's another that's another thing that happens here um depersonalization so um when you're in a cult there's a uh sort of social mechanic that happens where um they break down the individual ego um the individual personhood of you, of you um, and they make it a collective personhood. And uh, that also means that people in cults will either perf- become very performative in a way that gets like confused with psychopathy where it, it's like, ah, yeah, I, I love when you tell me that story, man. Anyways, that reminds me of this guy I knew who's in a lot of trouble. He seems like he's in trouble just like you are. <laughs> like you're, you're just using kind of normal so- social cues as a as a weapon. Yeah. Um, as, as, a, as a cudgel. Um and and then uh, that sort of depersonalization means you're willing to do things that are very much violating social rules, but you're like, but then if you get caught on it or get called out on it, your way in is uh, you, your way back is well, this is just what I need to do, this or my, this this, this helped duty. this helped me. How how dare you? Yeah. And there's a moment I didn't catch in 2016 when I saw this movie for the first time, which is crazy. This movie came out five years ago. It feels like God, it feels, feels like a movie I just saw. I know. Um, but uh, it, there's a moment where David fires uh, the, the first shot uh, in the sort of slaughter at the end of the movie. And then he freaks out and he starts pointing the gun at Pruitt. And Pruitt just calmly takes the gun from him. Yeah. And he's just like – and he has a little conversation with him that we can't hear because the um, the, the film is um, operating in slow motion with uh, the, the that sort of dialogue all kind yeah. of stripped. <clears throat> um and Pruitt just has like a, a calm conversation with him. He doesn't hit him. He's just sort of like, eh. and then Pruitt takes the gun because the firing the gun is just too traumatic for David. And then the next time we see David, he's back to being a slaughtering mess this time with a knife. So yeah. like there's, there's moments of like that depersonalization where like people, even people that have, you know, gone as far as setting up a mass slaughter, um, might freak out for a moment and need to be like reined in back to the, to the fold so that you, the, the moment you call that where he like he's like yeah sure i'll, I'll unlock the door yeah <laughs> like or locking the door in general actually let's go back to that like locking <laughs> being willing to lock the door and then have this elaborate lie that like is not that believable <laughs> um, not that you have to yeah not that you have to like take the key like what what is the, if they the key can, can stay in the lock yeah if they can get in to steal the key <laughs> <laughs> then it, they then they can get in like it, it, yeah but it's like it's one of those lies it's like how do you argue the logical point with them in front of everyone because it's so illogical and that's like i hate i hate that what, what i'm about to talk about is what i'm going to talk about and i don't want to dwell on it too much but you're right like the fact that like, white tw- people drive like this <laughs> Women be shopping. <laughs> but Scandinavians yeah. drive like this. Uh, no, the uh, – like – so this movie came out in 2015. I actually think this experience, which which was not universal, like that idea of like you go and see old friends and all of a sudden one of them's in a in a cult, like was not all that universal. I actually think 
what you see happen in this movie has become extraordinarily universal or at least uh, countryversal in the United States because like we've talked about on the show like how many like like trumpism and now like anti-covidism but like not anti belief in covidism or like anti-vaxism like we are surround like half this country is in this insane cult where they use their own code words and have these beliefs and like the amount of times like i saw a post on facebook or went back somewhere with a friend or like you know people that i just never would have guessed would have got sucked into QAnon or whatever else it is and you see like you see them post and you see them like support Trump and you see them, you know, go like, you know, no one should require nurses to get vaccinated. There's a lot of like all this sort of stuff. It's like, I feel like we're inundated by these things on a daily basis where we're, we're, we're forced to go like, man, I've known that person for 20 years, but also I, uh, I guess he thinks uh, that all the Democrats are feeding off the blood of babies. So I, you know, like if I see him in a bar in Bismarck, do I say, Hey, how's it going? Or, you know, like, I, I feel like we've been inundated by these normal social interactions from people that, um, we were close to, or not so close to that. All of a sudden you're like, Oh shit, you're in this weird cult and trying to like determine, how you're supposed to act like do you cut them out of your lives do you just try to ignore it do you hope it goes away do you hope you can go back to a normal dinner party and they stop forcing this like i do feel like this experience has become universal in a way it definitely wasn't in 2015 i have been at a wedding with somebody who um suddenly like was like I love Trump and he's finally going to he's finally going to clean things up. Things have been too messy for so long. And then they start using these veiled words that are clearly kind of racist and conspiratorial. Yeah. I've been and then like I'm like, yeah, I think I need to ha- stop having this conversation. And then the person get really mad at me like I'm judging their their way of life the way that like David and Pruitt and Eden can re- get really, you know, defensive. Yeah. Um, as if like I, they, they showed me their inner their inner personality. Um, when in reality, they're showing me the inner personality of a deeply developed cult machine yeah. um, that has that has hollowed them out and replaced them. And then, um, you know, just random extended family members where all of a sudden you're talking and they're like, man, those animals really burned down Chicago. And I was like, no, nope, didn't happen. I don't know what news you're watching. Please go the fuck away. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is bizarre. Like, I mean, we please stop talking. Please I know. Stop talking. <laughs> You just like I've had unfortunately some conversations with immediate family members, um, which I've t- I've talked about on the show before a little bit too, where it's like you end up like getting sucked into a conversation and just being like you don't live in the same reality as me anymore. Like between the news you're able to watch, the friends that reinforce this, it's like it's so obvious that like you're just not in reality anymore, and you just are constantly confronted with that that concept of do I just let the dinner play out and not make a thing of it? And that's what's again to go back to my earlier point. That's what's so great about this movie. No one at the dinner besides Eden and David and their two tag along cult members are like think it's anything but nutso cult stuff. But all of them are making a uh, more uh, a decision to like try to just get through the dinner party. Um, 
Except uh, one of the characters who leaves pretty early and is like, yeah, no, thank you. This is getting weird. Um, and then obviously our protagonist, uh, who is a lot more ready because it's like it's his tra- it's his trauma, too, that David has kind of taken over. Um, and also the way of, of mitigating it. that he, And it's, it's, it's his former house and other things that he is more ready to kind of jump in and call it out. But even that is something that like, you know, like that happens a lot. Like if you're in a like i've been in a workspace right where all of a sudden one of some trump cult member starts bringing up like yeah colin kaepernick really really tried to ruin football for everyone right and like there's such a there's such a uh like a desire to just be like let's just get on you know to use the metaphor let's just get on with the dinner like no confrontation is going to help no one's going to convince him and sometimes that person who you agree with wholeheartedly who like tries to like stick his foot down and go like this is the time to have this confrontation that's that's the guy you get annoyed at more than the crazy person who thinks like they're breaking the social conventions they're ha- they're having they're having the they're they're breaking the rules. Everyone agreed to just shut up and get through the dinner. Yeah, and like you know that they're right, and that also makes you think that they should know better. Like if you're <laughs> if you're you are right, you are everything you're saying is accurate. So you should be smart. Like he's a this person lost cause doesn't know anything. Complete idiot. He doesn't know better because he's a he's a baby child, right? You know better because everything you're saying is right. So you also know that the only thing that's going to be um, solved here is social disruption. And I don't know if this is the movie's point or not, but I think, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people of color have said about like, especially like the George Floyd stuff about uh, white people, which is which is us, Peter. I don't know how to break this to you, is that like. That that desire to just let the moment pass without confronting it is a is a privilege that we have, right? Because it's it's not impacting us personally in the moment, and so we don't want to have to confront it in the same way that we may we would have to if like that racist jargon was specifically directed at us, and like that's a privilege that we've had, and that yes. actually actually it's it's incredibly dangerous. Like, that that feeling to want to like get the guy who is speaking up for marginalized people or or you know pushing back against you know a harmful ideology is actually the person who is serving those marginalized communities or or or, or better by trying to at least say I at the very least I'm not going to stand for the what you're saying and I'm going to let you know that I'm not going to make it easier for you to spout your your stuff and like. I don't know if that's what this movie's about, but I think it kind of is a little bit that, like, you know, that Logan Marshall Green has to keep hitting on that point, and he's the one that everyone's like, can you just shut up? You're ruining this dinner. And ultimately, you know, if they would have listened to it, like, he was right. He should have been saying it earlier and louder, and people should have listened to what he had to say when they were recognized that in a lot of ways he was right, and trying to get him to shit down, to sit down. To shit down, uh, trying to get him to sit down and He's shut up. Zero gravity. Yeah, trying to get him to sit down and shut up ultimately resulted in way more harm. Um, yeah, so, I, I, I did, wouldn't have seen that in 2016. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't have seen that because it was before the election and everything. But like, you're right. Like in 
in the parlance of four years later, this movie did click for me where I was like, uh, now that four years later, I've kind of learned that like, uh, politeness can be a poison. Um, and, uh, just, it's just a way to relegate things to the the status quo. But what if that status quo is actively murderous? Yeah. Um, I think that the, like the cult here is like not particular, the fact that the cult here is not particularly, as you pointed out, the cult is not particularly good at their pitch. Um, they, they do the love bombing at the beginning, which uh, is, is a tech cult technique where it's like, especially if you don't feel appreciated, or you don't feel loved, you feel lonely, like a group of people suddenly being super nice to you is like, it, it releases, it releases endorphins, physical touch releases oxytocin, it, it releases serotonin. Um, the, the John Carroll Lynch wanting to hug you? <laughs> releases right. something it's a tone-in i bet you he's a really good hugger though right john carroll lynch is amazing because uh season two of channel zero really highlighted this the way that he can go from just a huge teddy bear that you want to hug to the most terrifying person on the planet in 30 seconds and then back God, what, <laughs> um, a it, what a weapon that show that show's so smart he really is one of our most like underrated actors he, that's I mean that's also it's not it's not quite deployed the same way in Zodiac but it's deployed in the way where um, he can slink into just like I'm a regular guy and then he I'm gives a guy you with a little a look and you're like what, what is, what's the deal with that watch why does someone have a basement in, a, in California what, what's going on here why is he acting so creepy towards those guys was it because they were acting insane um but yeah, that that like love bombing they do, where they're like they're touching and they're they're giving wine and they're they're throwing their largesse at people and like they're trying to impress them with a, just a splash of wealth, like a really good dinner and a really expensive wine um, in this beautiful house, um, and they're playing the good hosts and, and that that sort of love bombing goes beyond normal friendliness or normal politeness and it transcends into in, in, into this this moment where. Um, if there was a long-term pitch, maybe they could have gotten them on their side. Um, yeah, but they, they, they have they're very an intelligent audience. They're an intelligence audience and they all kind of know she's in a cult. Um, and there's kind of no way to hide. Like I went down to Sonora, Mexico and stayed in a compound for a few months and now I'm perfect. Like that, <laughs> that there's no way to, there's no, oh, also no. I have all these weirdos hanging out with us. Okay, so like bringing a new boyfriend around, normal. Bringing weirdo, two new weirdos around that clearly like kind of live here is like, okay, this is messed up. We're, we were all catching up as old friends. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I mean, they, they name it, right? They're like, oh, you join the invitation. So they're not, it's not yes. even like hiding what group it is, right? Like it is, oh yeah, my buddy, I have a few guys at work that are in that. Yeah, uh, but it, it also they say really just really quickly they yeah. say is that like some sort of new est? Which I, have you heard of est? Uh, no. The Americans, I did not. Um, that's the that's the the, the self help seminars that they went to, and the est was sort of this like um, this like it operated from seventy one to eighty four, but there were these seminars you'd go to and you paid money and you would. And you'd have, like, a very authoritative, like, leader basically give you, like, life coaching advice. Um, and it was basically got – once it got dubbed a cult, it kind of, like, imploded and they renamed it another thing. And then I, I think it kind of evolved into another thing after that. Anyways, and then they – and then another person says, like, um, 
uh, yeah, one of the guys says, oh, yeah, my boss took the invitation. And then yeah. another person is like, yeah, it's kind of weird, but this is L.A. And it's sort of hinting at this this weird thing about California that's been up, that's been happening since like the 50s, which is that California is like a land, a land of new religious movements yeah. dash cults. I mean, that's that's dying. Yeah. We read about the history of Scientology, right? Like that's that's all it's like. Yeah. That's that kind the of- Manson family. That was yeah. like, uh, and, and then what's funny is clearly the Sadie character is clearly based on Susan Atkins, which is it's Sadie, Sadie, sexy Sadie or whatever um, yeah. in the Manson family. Because um, she's just kind of like throwing herself sexually at them in a way that like the other ones aren't doing. Like Eden is being like uh, at times sexually transgressive. But she's just kind of being sweet and smiling and she's the good hostess. Um, but Sadie is like acting like this is like a true death cult. She's like, yeah, I mean, if, if, if having sex with you is what takes what it takes to get to your salvation, then yeah. So she's totally she's totally a Susan Atkins figure. I mean, that's also like a, a cult technique or like even just like a gaslighting, like like love bombing. Right. It's that idea of like, I'm going to talk about sex in a weird uncomfortable open way like you know talking about sex is fine to like i just met these old friends and i'm like oh yeah one thing i loved was uh was was uh uh was like getting fucked on the beach in front of people in mexico it's like okay well that's a lot of information that you're now forcing me to 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 reckon with because i just met you like you know and it's that thing of like trying to um, um, broach to 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 throw like bombs of inappropriateness into a conversation so that like people have to kind of meet you halfway to engage in a way that's like trying to trick them into talk more about like you know uh, sex or other other stuff. An interesting trick they use uh, as well is um, that uh, another interesting trick they use there is that like. Um, they talk about all this as like a way of curing trauma, a way of curing trauma. You know, pain is optional. Uh, It's something that, and this, this, this cure is something that anyone can have. Yeah. You you have to forgive yourself and then, and then basically it's fine once you forgive yourself. And they're all kind of easy, empty aphorisms. You keep, you brought up a couple times, which I, I think it's right, which is that they're not doing a very good pitch. I don't think it matters. I think what they're doing is because they know that night they're going to end up murder-suiciding them. And, like, great. They convince all of them that they um, – they convince all of them that, you know, the, the, the that it's uh, it's time to go and they drink the wine willingly and knowingly. Great. But I, I think that they know since they're using the wine and they have all this, this planning and they have a gun as a backup and, like, they have John Carroll Lynch as sort of an enforcer. I think they know that the end of this evening is going to be ugly. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be this smooth sailing thing. There's a reason Sadie gets so mad when she's like, you've ruined everything to to Will when he smashes the wine glasses. Because for her, she was really hoping this would just be this smooth, nice, just clean kind of experience. But like John Carroll Lynch is prepared for it to get ugly. All of them knew that the end of the evening, this like transitions, this transition state, so to speak, this transcendence from this mortal plane, this murder, um, it was gonna, it was gonna get bad. Even if a few people drank the wine, like, so I don't think they're necessarily trying to even pitch them on the group. I don't think they're trying to pitch them and join. What I think they're trying to do is to get them to 
like in a very like childlike way of viewing things. I think what they're trying to do is to get them to buy into the philosophy without saying that they'll join the invitation so that they will all be together in the the next state of being. So like they're not saying – they're not feeling like you need to join the invitation or that you will accept the, the, the murder-suicide that's about to happen. But what they're saying is um, – I need you to recognize that you need to forgive yourself and to like not dwell on these – like all their little stuff. It's why they keep going back to that because I think what they feel is like if we can trick them into you know, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and then we kill them, um, then they get to hang out with us Clean in the next slate. place. Yes, exactly. So like that's what I think they're trying – that's why they keep going back to like the core tenet. Uh, which again is such a like, you know, fucking snapple top, worthless. Like, hey, actually, you shouldn't have to suffer any guilt or consequences for your actions. All you need to do is recognize it was bad and it happened and it moved on. Which again, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to like John Carlinch, uh, John Carlinch's amazing monologue. Jesus Christ, it's chilling. It's chilling, but it is like it. It's again. It's like the exact way that sociopaths, which unfortunately I think is more people than we ever ever uh, would have thought a few years ago, um, shame on us maybe, uh, like reckon with um, uh, uh, the harm that they've caused. It's what we see all the time with like Me Too and the way like Louis C.K. or, you know, name your, your, your person where they, they, they don't feel like they actually have to do anything to make amends. As long as they are sorry and they've forgiven themselves, anyone else who still is um, – expects something of them or is not um, – has not um, forgiven them is actually – I can't fix that, which is true. You don't, you know, you're never going to get everyone to forgive you if you're a public figure and do a bunch of shitty things and you shouldn't be trying. But that idea of like, hey – I've learned from this. I've forgiven myself. If you expect any anything by way of penance, apologies, whatever else, that's your problem, man. I, yeah, but I, I'm good. Like that. That mentality is so toxic and so and so commonplace. And so, like, that's what I mean. Like, what they're trying to get. That's what. But that's ultimately what they're trying to get people to accept, right? They're just trying to be like, hey, because their their cult is like, you know, fucking. Uh, uh, baby shambles or whatever. It's just like, I just need you to forgive yourself. And like, that's what they're trying to get him to do. But it's so like, uh, it's so like transparently meaningless that obviously like their, their friends are not even going to like, like why? Like, no, I'm not going to just say I forgive myself. What does that even mean? Like, they're they're not trying to engage. Eden and David are like, it's so simple. We just need you to get to this thing. It's why I think they they just keep hitting it because they like like most people in cults or religions, they think there's like this combination of words that worked for them that's going to work for other people the same way. And if they just say it over and over, or say it a different way, they're going to get them. Yeah, I, I I both agree and, and disagree a little bit. I think I think that they uh, this is sort of a Hale Bop Comet kind of thing, like a, a Heaven's Gate thing or a Jonestown thing, where um if you die by suicide or by murder <clears throat> or something weirdly in between, um 
you get to come with us to the next plane because this timing is right, for instance, for the Hale-Bopp comet or with Jonestown. It's like, well, you've been devoted servants. Now it's time to, you know, go to heaven. This world is too wicked. We need to move on to the next plane. Um, I think that they it's not even about a external sort of uh, Christian missionary version of like, we need you to accept the mission. I don't even think it's that. I think it's that they're trying to ameliorate their guilt by explaining their ethos on why they're going to kill you several hours before they do. No, I see. I don't, I don't think they're trying to convert them because they're trying to convert them in the span of a dinner party. Like it's a bad pitch. I think they're just trying to say like, no matter what you're coming with us to the next plane, it's just whether or not you get to understand why that's happening or not. That's, I mean, that's a good point. Cause clearly, I mean, the two examples that you cited, um, are well they're real but like they didn't they were doing it so that they and their cult leaders could ascend to the next plane right there wasn't this idea of like you need to bring in all your loved ones and take them with you and what i guess i'm not entirely clear because we don't get to see the whole video is it i mean there's basically two options one they bring all their loved ones there and kill them with them as the way to like like very literally let go of all of your guilt like not only am i you know Am I letting go of my pain and my guilt? I'm going to kill everyone who uh, uh, who was like part of that pain and guilt, which all these people were, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a second. Um, and so like that's like that's like their final test for for them to ascend or they're going like there there is some sort of action that their cult leaders making them do to to take these people with them. I don't think it's and the they former. are the people that they love. Like they're they yeah. are like I mean that's also that also could be a pragmatic thing. Like how do you get it a bunch be a of strangers together thing, and yeah. then murder them? We don't know what the other slaughters look like. Are they all just dinner parties, Christmas family reunions? <laughs> yeah, I feel like it has to be right because they seem to be like you just they really seem to be trying to get them to accept what's going on and on some level, and they keep talking about you can join us in the next life. So. There must have been some cult call to bring people with them. Um, I don't know if the cult... It sounds like they're bringing them with. No matter what, you're coming with us to the next level, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I guess I don't want you to be angry as we ascend to the next plane. Like, (laughs) real dick move, guys. (laughs) It's really going to make the ride on the comet just a pain in the ass. Like, I guess, you know, I mean, I got to say... We are we are ascended to the next plane. So I'm, I'm not like you were right there, but just like I don't know. Tell us about it, man. Like you know, um, Eden, Eden, that was really shitty. What you're doing? That was really shit. Oh, that's Jupiter, Eden. What you did was just really fucking terrible. What? There is life on that moon. That's fucking crazy, Eden. That was awful. That what you did was the worst thing ever. But all, those roasted carrots, those were fucking <laughs> good. Can I get the recipe for that shit? Yeah. Is there recipes in the next plane? <laughs> yeah, we've already talked most about the plot of this movie and have gotten into a lot. So let's just keep going, Peter. Do you want to keep talking about the invitation? Plot recap. See what I skipped over, Peter? We're doing we it. it. We love it. Um, quick plot recap. We already talked about it a little bit, but um, essentially, so 
Uh, Logan Marshall Green, who plays a very famous Will? character. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking up the cast so I can talk about this. As we <laughs> okay. Uh, so Logan Marshall Green plays Will, who used to be married to Eden. Um, they had a son who died at a birthday party with all of their friends a couple years ago. Um, uh, you know, terrifically traumatic. He was probably like eight or nine. Um, he was five. It, no, he was older than that. He looked older than that, but there was a five candle on the birthday cake. Oh, okay. Well, then he's, <laughs> yeah, I was also I mean, thinking he looked. I can't, I can't. I can't argue with those facts. Uh, but yeah, so, this the only reason I remind, remembered is because it was surprising. But it was like some sort of like uh, birthday game accident that occurred. Um, you get little flashes of like their their loving um, their loving relationship in the house, Eden and Will. Um, the great like the, the how much they love their kid. They're talking about having a second one, and obviously, you know, they losing a kid just impossibly traumatic to even even comprehend and it has an impact on everyone that was at the birthday party that day their entire like lifelong or some sometime long friend group um they basically like you said they kind of all stay together they, they there is some contact that that occurs between some of the people uh in the group but essentially the group the gang as they may call it um uh Go their separate ways, and no one really hears from Eden in two years. Now, I don't think the incident happened two years ago because they they seem to know David to some extent. So, at some point, uh, David, who is a rec- ex record producer, coke fiend, who uh, his, whose wife died, uh, ends up meeting Eden through recovery or trauma recovery, and they end up falling in love eventually getting married, and then eventually separating from this entire group of friends, and as we find, joins a cult called The Invitation, which is all about how to uh, release your trauma and stop worrying about uh, your earthly pain. Anytime a cult says earthly, get out. (laughs) Because it means they have their sights bigger on the planet where all of us live. Yeah, it's only... Don't worry about that. It's only something that happens on the Earth. The only place that supports life, wink, wink. Um, so we're introduced to a lot of their their friends. Um, you know, a couple. Uh, you know, they, they're almost like just a good nondescript LA diverse group friend. You know, there's um, there's uh, uh, there's a gay couple. There's a married guy with kids who's like wife is at home with the kids. Yeah, there's like a kind of there to have a good time in a way that like the rest of them aren't because he has kids at home. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, very he's very much ready to like try some stuff because he has a free night. Uh your wife said that pretty specifically when um that he she was I remember at her wedding talking about yeah, like, oh yeah, you gotta watch out for all the all the parents who leave their kids at home and come <laughs> for the weekend because they don't know what to do. Uh, but, like, then there's Gina, it's, who... It's also something to watch out for bash- at bachelor parties. Yeah. <laughs> you did uh, well at mine, though. And at your wedding, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's not how everyone is who has kids, Peter. <laughs> um, uh, there's Choi and uh, and Kira, who are a married couple. Choi was supposed to be there early. He's known for being late. He hasn't showed up yet. I mentioned Claire, who I think may be single, may, may have a... Kids or husband at home, uh, she ends up being the one who's offended and leaves quick and is, is very much like not not into it at all. 
Uh, there's Choi, who is dating, who isn't there, who's supposed to be there early and still hasn't shown up, which they kind of are like, oh, that's just Choi, get sucked up in things, who is dating uh, Kira and uh, and then – oh, sorry, not Kira, uh, dating um, uh, Gina. And then Kira, who is who is now with Will, who it's it's it seems to be the first time that uh, Kira has ever met Eden, his ex-wife, and David. But the rest of them have clearly met David at some point. So, anyways, yeah, yeah. I get the sense Kira and Will have been dating for like six to twelve months. Like she knows his shit, but she hasn't been in his shit very long. Yeah, yeah, she's meeting a lot of these people for the first time, um, and uh, I think they, they kind of talk about like. They're still making decisions more about whether – yes, they're in love, but are they going to be in each other's uh, lives, especially as shit starts to get more real throughout the night. So um, a lot of a lot of weird stuff that happens at the beginning. They hit a coyote, which uh, Will has to kill with a tire iron. All, like this is definitely the era of let's hit deers on the way to our horror stuff, get out and <laughs> some other things. Like uh, – but uh, uh, they get there. They're all like saying, oh my gosh, it's been so long. They immediately get weirded out because even though Pruitt takes a little bit to show up, Sadie, who's that kind of like sex crazed person, kind of is like, hi, I, I met all these guys in Mexico. We all hung out. And she's like kissing people and like in a very forward way. It's like, oh, okay, well, clearly there's – she might be part of their relationship and some, something. Maybe that's what they're going to talk about tonight. Um, which would have definitely been a good thing as opposed to the terrible thing they actually want to talk about. Um, um, so, but yeah, they start talking. The, the first weird thing is obviously we mentioned that David pulls out the key to the door after everyone's there, quote unquote. And they're like, why are you locking us in? And they have a weird microaggression about like where we mentioned that he's like, he's coming up with a completely illogical reason that there were some people that walked around the house. Uh, and so they just want to be aware of uh, break-ins and stuff like that, which, as we mentioned, makes no sense. But then they're like, hey, we want to show you something, uh, our, our video from Mexico. And they show this video of them at this retreat. <laughs> we were expecting hang gliding. <laughs> yeah. This retreat that, like, helped them so much. And the end of it is them sitting with someone who's dying. And everyone's just like, wait, did I just watch someone die? And they're like, yeah, wasn't it beautiful? Like, again, this is like the first 20 minutes of the, this movie. This is like bef- they just poured glasses of wine. Appetizers have not been served. And they, they're like, yeah, I don't get the sense that Will is hours late to the party. I get the sense that he's 20 minutes later than everyone else. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're all waiting for people. Uh, so, so yeah. So they're like, what the fuck? So they, they go, hey, sorry. It just helped us. <laughs> we thought it helped you guys weird, whatever. Um, and so, uh, uh, then they, they like try to like revive the party a little bit. Uh, there are these little like digressions where say like, uh, Will, cause this is Will's old house where he lived with, with Eden, uh, before and while his son was alive. Can I look around? He finds some, he finds some fentanyl in one of their drawers like a lot and he's like that's odd uh of course anytime he tries to bring it up to people they're like you're snooping through their drawers will what's going on it's like yeah okay have drugs yeah sure i was i was snooping through their their drawers i also found something that is very concerning so let's not it's not like i'm not a cop i don't need a search warrant yes I did something that is socially frowned on that may have just uh, really uh, made a discovery that could save all your lives. Uh, anyway, 
so they try to get the party back on track but by someone named Pruitt coming to the door. This does not work. That's John Carroll Lynch, who is just this aggressively weird presence that just like sits behind people. And then they start trying to play this game of like, I want – it's like never have I ever, but I'll tell you what I want. So like, you know, at first Gina's like, I want some cocaine. And they're like, we have cocaine. <laughs> Great. Um, and, you know, again, as we mentioned, like this this inability to slow play trying to get people engaged in this call. Pruitt, like he's number three. He's like, I want to tell you a story about my wife. And he gives this monologue about how much he loved his wife. And, you know, you think you're going to hear another, like, trauma story. I mean, you are. But, like, you think you're going to hear, like, and then, you know, she tripped and fell and died. And I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. But instead, it just takes a darker and darker turn where he's like, and I was drinking, of course. And, you know, I don't know why these things happen. Like, she just was asking me and something about me in my head that time just snapped. And, yeah, I just hit her really, really hard. And she came to the ground. Like, and, you know, he tells a story about killing his wife out of anger. And being drunk and angry and fucking killing his wife. And he's like, and then I went to jail. Just can't believe it. just one of those things. Worst mistake, you know? Woof. I still love her today. Miss her every day. And I want to tell you guys, I'm just proud that I've been able to forgive myself for this. And, and like, just this horrendous, not just a horrendous story to tell under any circumstances, but the way he has justified it, forgiven himself. Uh, that's when Claire leaves. She's like, look, I'm out of here. Um, John Carroll Lynch comes up with a reason. And she to- also apologizes a bunch, re- reflecting on the thing we talked about yeah. earlier, which is that like pe- people feel awkward leave- like leaving parties, um, especially when you're with friends because you don't want to seem like a stick in the mud or a worried ward or whatever. Also, John Carroll Lynch mentioned he's like that this all happened seven years ago. Yeah, which implies that he served less than seven years for his murder of his wife. Well, you know, he learned from it and he's forgiven himself. And yeah, he's cured. He's cured. Um, yeah, so you, but you're right. She does it like, I'm, look, I'm just sorry. I'm just, I'm just not having a good night. As opposed to being like, uh, hey, that was completely fucked up. But also, like, you're just, like, if I brought, like, Peter, if you brought your, you know, I met Charlie. Charlie's great. Charlie's been on the show. If I met your brother, Charlie, and Charlie's like, oh, you know, I, I try not to drink too much because when I accidentally killed my girlfriend in high school, like, it, it's, it, it is, not, I mean, I, I, like, you've brought this person into my life. You've known this person. I'm at your bachelor party. My option is not to be like, hey, Peter, him or me? <laughs> like, you know, my, my option would be to leave and uh, leave the, leave the, leave the party and say good luck. Good luck, Chuck. That's what I would say. You apologize for something that is a completely normal reason, which is like, yeah, I don't wish to occupy this space anymore with a murderer, a fresh murderer, less fresh, than seven fresh years ago. Yeah. And like, again, he doesn't like do a round where he does like, I wish I had some chocolate cake. And then like three rounds in when people are drunk, tries to tell this story. He's like, yeah, I'd like to go. Yeah. No, me. Yeah. I killed my wife. I'll go. It's really uncomfortable, and it's it's yeah. it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, examination of this movie's main theme of like social anxiety and the social the the social ills of politeness, um, which is that he steps up and everyone just shuts the fuck up in a way that like you don't shut up for friends. 
Um, because he's kind of a stranger and you don't want to offend a yeah. stranger because you don't know he's not your friend. Like, you don't know. Yeah, if he's your friend, you'd be like, friends. oh, my God, the story of where you kill your wife. You told us a hundred times. Through <laughs> it. We get it. You get drunk. You get angry. You murder people close to you. But like, I, I, I noticed this because I had to change towns and I had to change towns. Yeah. Um, all Wait a second. Maybe there's a story that you need to tell me. Yeah. Um, I Peter, I wish you would tell me why you had to flee the Midwest. For no particular reason, Aaron. Yeah. Wink. <laughs> um, uh, How very uh, unpruid of you. Who would you <laughs> Uh, I mean, what if he was just like, I'm a naughty boy. Wink. (laughs) Um, Sometimes uh, I get a little naughty with my wife, like one time. (laughs) We're all expecting a story about horny old people, and it just really, really turns south. Um, The social politeness thing is like, when I first moved here, and I was, you know, meeting lots and lots of different people, and I changed jobs and stuff. Um... I, I I ran into this and it's something that I can never actually get out of my head, which is that like when you're with people who trust and love you, they will interrupt you and talk over you and like or push you to talk to tell a story like they're allowed to step over social bounds. But when you're talking to a stranger, even if the stranger is a little weird or off putting, which I'm sure I, I have been, um, you you just shut up and let the person talk. Yeah. Just like, like you're just being polite. You don't actually know anything about this person. Maybe it goes back to like the caveman days and like that person was going to hit you over the head with a fucking rock. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But uh, that is a that is a very stirring, chilling moment when suddenly this party that has been pretty rowdy, uh, the, 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 cup, the, the, the everybody is kind of just chiming and, and shitting at each other, like taking little jabs in very loving way. They're taking little jabs and then all of a sudden John Carroll Lynch is like, I know a way to ruin a party. <laughs> yeah. After they've already ruined a party, right? Like by, oh, you know what's really helped us? Watching this lady die. Oh, God. You don't say. Serve apps first is all them. You think I was just hungry watching this movie? <laughs> Look, <laughs> get a mozzarella stick out here. Apps before uh, confession. Absolutely. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Claire leaves and Pruitt like, oh, you know. I parked behind you. Um, And then I try to apologize. Yeah. Bill's like watching intently because he's like, why is this person who just told the murder story following Claire to her car after she reacted badly to it? Uh, David pulls him away and is like, with some bullshit about like, we're just happy you're here and stuff like that. So meanwhile, there's no reception up here. Um so yeah, so Will Will thinks it's weird that there's no reception because he lived there. There was always reception, and David keeps saying there's never any reception up there. Uh, but he finally like walks far enough in the backyard to get a message from Troy saying he's at the front door. So they go to have dinner, and uh, you know they're saying all these nice words, and there's a big confrontation where he's like, "Where's Troy? Where's Troy? Where's Troy?" Like. Um, he left me a message. You tell me where he is. And they're like, we don't know. We haven't seen him. It's actually the one time they're being truthful as we find out. But we think that this is going to be the big confrontation. There's finally a knock on the door. It's like, he's like, you, you're going to, like, you did something to Choi. No, 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 no. Like, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
and I, there's Troy at the door. He was. He says, I was at the door. I was ready to come in. I got a call from work. I had to go. And it's that worst thing of like being right, but everyone looking at you like, we told you just to shut up about all this stuff. And now look, you've been proven to be a paranoid lunatic who's freaking out about people. Uh, Kira wants to leave and like he he's kind of like receding in himself. He broke the social norm. He broke that contract, even though technically, you know, the hosts were breaking it first. But when he finally tried to make his point, thinking he had irrefutable evidence that he was going to people were going to go to his side, um, you know, he was proven wrong in that specific point. So. Then he's going about they, – they go to do a final toast, which we know is going to kill everyone. And he sees how weird they're being about like goodbye kisses and everyone looking at each other and stuff like that. And he stops it again. And at this point, everyone's just like, you got to be kidding me. Breaks all the glasses and stuff like that. And um, like – and he says, they did something to the glasses. They're going to hurt us. He had also watched – he went to someone's office again uh, and uh, watched a video too. And it kind of was like – again, we don't see him say kill your family. But he says, you're leaving tonight and all this stuff. And he, he recognizes something's terrible and then sees the way they're acting about the hope. The wine needs to be perfect anyways. Um, he, he confronts everyone and then um, – uh, so what ends up happening as they're all fighting about all this stuff, it turns physical. Um Sadie gets thrown against a corner of a table and kind of gashes her head and everyone goes over to help her and and someone goes, she's not breathing. And they're like, well, no, she's breathing. And they look over and the one person uh, who drank the drink, Gina, is uh, foaming at the mouth, has been poisoned. And so everything starts happening really, really quickly, right? Like David shoots Miguel, the doctor, the boyfriend. <laughs> and I, I really got like a you got a name right. <laughs> uh, this is a terrible recap for me. I could have done Manos really easy. I just got to say Torgo a lot. Uh, but uh, – and then, you know, a, basically a bunch of people die really quick. Unfortunately, Will does not get a good I told you so moment. Will knows the house and is going with Kira to try to escape. Uh, but every door is locked and even a door that he used to be aware of uh, is, is gone <laughs> uh, when he thinks he can finally escapes. But eventually everyone but um, – they finally, you know, kill everyone. There's a cat and mouse game through the house. Uh, Will, Kira, and Ben, Miguel's uh, husband, uh, end up surviving uh, while everyone else is dead. And they noticed that there was this red light that Will had put – or sorry, that David had put up, uh, this lantern outside. And uh, on the video, the cult leader, uh, played by a wonderful Toby Huss – um, who uh, can always play a, a cult leader if he wants oh, to. Oh, this Huss is a must. Yeah, Huss is a must. Um, he says after you've like array to leave, put the put the red light out. So as they go outside and they're looking over the valley and all these homes um, on the on the hill, um, they are hearing all these like police chatter and helicopters and just see tons of red lights, recognizing that this this cult that was uh, well known enough. For people to to recognize the name at this dinner party with the invitation, uh, had a bunch of people who just killed an uh, an unknown amount of people uh, in their family, and like that ending stayed with me a long time. That idea oh, yeah. of like you go outside and you just look and there's just red lights everywhere, and it's not even like a crime to stop. Like that was it. Like you're seeing. The aftermath of like some people that probably survived, some people, some families or friend groups that got completely murdered, but like it's already over. Like it's over. 
uh, as you became aware that there was something to stop and the scope of it was bigger than you could have imagined. Which oh, yeah, is there's, actually- ten, there's 10, I counted, there's 10 red lights just on the hill that we can see. Yeah. So it's not every single house, but it's, you know, half of the houses just on this one hill. Like that's fucking wild. Like that's that's a huge scale. It is. And one of the like one of the reasons I really love cult movies and why we're doing this month is that it's 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 actually why so many of the movies that we excluded this month are so effective. Because one of the things that cult movies can do really well, by the definition, is that we don't know the implications of the cult, right? We're rarely in it to the point where we know the machinations of how the cult works, what they're after, what their goals are, and everything like that. And so uh, even this movie and some of the ones we're going to talk about that we do get an inside look at the cult, it still has the ability to kind of um, surprise with the larger scope that we as an audience member who is not in the cult or is not seeing a point of view character who's in the cult usually is able to uh, – that would know. So, like, by a cult movie's nature, they're, uh, we're, they're, they're really able to do these amazing Twilight Zone endings where you're able to wrestle with the scope of what the cult was after or, or how far the cult's reach was. And, like – that's that's something that in like cult movies will work for me every time. I don't care if it's been done a million times before. What what those implications and what the what what they are can always be different enough to usually be very entertaining to me. And so like this is a really great example of that. We know the cult, we know what they're after. We we know what their ultimate goal is, which is to bring their friends together and kill their friends. We know how the cult did stuff, which is different than a lot of cult movies. What we didn't realize was the implications that dozens and hundreds and thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people across the country were in this cult and now the scope presents itself in, in the final scene that we get to see and we have to wrestle with how uh, how influential the cult was and again to tie the last thing I'll say for a little bit because I've been talking a long time but like that does tie back to like we see how many people around us are in like this this political cult that we have to deal with and like can you imagine if one of them pulled a toby huss and was like hey tonight i want you to gather your friends and family and kill them all like we would probably see this many red lights as we went down the street by house by house and like the the implications of that are terrifying and are just extraordinarily effective in this movie (laughs) i've seen these beautiful houses up on these these valleys and these hillsides like the implication that this strange little red lantern off in the distance could mean that there's an entire house full of dead bodies is 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 just it's terrifying yeah and the fact that all you can really hear you can hear one gunshot and one scream and you can hear the helicopters and the sirens like you said it's it's over the damage is already done and you're just expected to accept this the the the, the reality of these red lights. This does not mean that <clears throat> this is not um, the end of Resident Evil where she steps out in the street and, pu- and she cocks her shotgun. It's like, it's time to go. Like this is them realizing that the trauma that they just experienced is now massive and it's over. The trauma has already been instilled. Yep. Th- they timed this so that, you know, everybody would roughly around the same time have their moment. It's, it's all gone. Yeah, there's not like a, oh, cool, what's the implications of, say, Rosemary having Satan's baby? Those are big implications. <laughs> like, what could happen next? It's, it's, 
all we, we we didn't uh we we knew we knew the end game we just didn't realize the scope in this case the end game is actually kind of terrifyingly small yeah because this cult is probably gone and anybody that the cult could have hurt is now dead or dying yeah like the, it's, it's all over it's, it's the inverse of rosemary's baby it's actually yeah. like it's actually like the movie eating itself at the end which is it's it's making the universe smaller because there's less less in it which is a i think kind of a I don't know, especially for an indie horror movie that's like, uh, if, if you can scare people with some red lights that are presumably CGI, um, you've done your job. And it's yeah. Tommy, Will, and Kira all holding each other. So the main yeah. couple and then one of their friends, Tommy, um, who lost his uh, his boyfriend, husband, uh, Miguel. They're sitting there. They, the, the thing that they now have in common is that they're survivors and they have gone through a new trauma together. That's terrifying. Like, yeah, that's, they're 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 closer than ever, but like for a horrifying reason. Well, and there uh, is the there's the so it's so frustrating, like the fact that no one is willing to step outside of the social con- like you social convention with him. Even watching it a second time, it was like just so like you almost like the petty part of you wants him to have a moment where they actually do get away from all the gunfire and the murders, so he can be so they can like you want a moment of catharsis where they're like. Oh, sorry. Told you so. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you want that because it's so – it's like – it's such a – it's such a, like – it's – I don't know. Like, it's such a big thing that happens. Like, this idea of this close group of friends and then almost instantaneously half of them are dead, right? Like – Yeah. But it's it's not not a win because jumping back to the generalized anxiety disorder and someone who struggles with a lot of anxiety myself that's just completely fucking irrational. Uh, Karin Kusama basically was like, you know, I've suffered from uh, anxiety disorder. I wanted to make a movie. She didn't write it, but she's like, I want to take this idea of the script and really make it into what it feels like to constantly feel like something is off and the way that the world and your and people around you look at you when you're experiencing that. And that is like very present in this movie. All the little like looks we get as uh, Bill is like – or Will is looking at uh, – um, the way doors are closed and the way people look out the windows and the way people pour drinks and stuff like that. Like, in this case, he's right, but he, like, he constantly has to reckon with, like, do I want to be the person shouting at the side of the street? Uh, and then she wanted to tell that story through the prism of two movies, Peter. I don't know if you read this. Uh, the idea of the slow build, like, let the right one in, where it just gets explosive near the end, uh, which I, I can see. And then... um uh, have you seen Festin? I have. I haven't, but uh, I, I saw she called that out in an interview. It sounds fascinating. Festin's great. Festin uh, is. I think it's. Uh, I'm gonna look at. Oh yeah, the celebration. Uh, so it's a it's a Danish uh, film about like this family that's at this like this. It's been a, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but essentially at this like wedding reception or something like that, and then like the f- the family breaking down slowly happens throughout the movie to more and more vi- violent and chaotic effects. It's it's kind of like the reason it had it's it's somewhat well known. It's a really great movie. Part of the reason it gets some of its. Um, uh, notoriety or like awareness. It's it's like considered the only Dogma ninety five movie not directed by Von Trier that was any good. <laughs> um, uh, oh, but, it's 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 a Vinterberg movie. Yeah, Got it. it's great though. Um, and you definitely see the influence of both of those movies. But sorry, what were you saying about the anxiety thing? I, I totally see the generalized anxiety disorder thing that she's talking about that Karen Kusama's talking about because. 
it's not a win <clears throat> that the one that like your irrational anxiety was was right like yeah. that just that <laughs> you never feel edified when your anxiety is right it just courses you off on on a new spiraling pattern um it actually just it just speeds up the stream of consciousness and the um the the the, the, the discomfort that comes with that where um, the stream of consciousness is picking up more speed and it's more uncomfortable for you and it's spiraling out and it's spreading out um, across across the, your mental landscape. And like it, it's it's um, <laughs> like it's never edifying because the, the, the fake stuff is just as real as the real stuff. Yeah, I guess that makes I mean, I guess rein, reinforcing a, a hormonal imbalance is not right that's yeah. what that would be yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It, it's um and so it, it, it's uh the movie is very much about like how much can we play with what is in will's head versus what is real but also admit up front that this is some variety of cult like this isn't that that's what makes the movie actually more interesting is that sort of um it's like it's, it's like the conversation that it's like the idea that it, when you're making a debate your your debate actually gets stronger if you give a, a condolence or not a condolence, you give like a, you have a given at the beginning of it. So you say, uh, I hate blueberries. However, I once had a good blueberry pie. Like you can you can work that into your you can work that sort of caveat into your 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 debate. It's similar. It's similar here where it's like because it's admitting something that's so patently obvious on its face like, yes, this is a cult. They're all asking reasonable questions. Will is actually acting pretty reasonable for someone who's, like, clearly still dealing with a lot of trauma and is uh, in a very uncomfortable position. He's in his old house that he was in where his son died. I don't know if he died in the backyard, but his son ba- Yeah, ba- backyard. His his son lived with him there and his wife. He's, his ex-wife is now here she changed almost nothing about the house except for their son's bedroom turned into david's office because david is now married to her and it's just like even if you've moved on from the romantic attachment to your wife in, in what what has it been two years two years so i think it was for longer ago two years is the last time they've all been together or not talk to to eat it that makes that kind of makes more sense for the timeline anyways like um, uh, when you're married to someone and you have like uh, children with them, like the the, 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 the the yeah, there's like some discomfort that you have to work through, right? If you're you're seeing them again, and imagine doing that in a, in a place that's just so connected in your mind, like our, your dog does it. <laughs> if there's a dog, I noticed this today. My dog, who doesn't bark really at random dogs, but like uh, a dog always barks at him, and today that dog wasn't there. And he still looked at that house and growled at it. Like, dogs do it. People do it. If you have a bad association with a bar, you tend to not go back to that bar. If you yeah. have a bad association with a restaurant, you tend to not go back to that restaurant. Like, pe- people build associations uh, with trauma and place. Um, one of my friends had a very traumatic incident on a subway platform, or uh, the uh, M- the um, CTA platform in Chicago. Yeah. Um, she had a very traumatic experience uh, involving a gunfire. And so she tried the CTA for a very long time because she associated 
CTA platforms, which are basically all uniform with uh, with trauma. Like, yeah. it happens to all of us, whether we want to admit it or yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, have have kids. You're just basically like, I wonder if that one's going to take. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, there's just so many of those moments that are so traumatizing to children especially too where you just are like you know as a, as a parent it's so it's so easy to be like all right well yep that time that that uh spider came down and landed on you is that a fear of spiders forever is that a you know momentary fear of spiders you know it's just impossible to 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 gauge but like it's it's not just a childhood thing yeah when you have um when you you know like as someone who had i've never had like uh general anxiety disorder but i have had situational anxiety like to the point that i started you know um in certain areas where i would have panic moments and then um it wasn't even necessarily that like i would i would panic so much about having panic being in the same situation that i would almost give myself panic attacks right like to the point that i would um it wasn't anything like causing it like not that you need anything that can cause that anxiety or panic attack but like I, I had it with um with like uh driving driving on the interstates for a while like where when it where I had like a you know low on sleep had a panic attack while I was driving terrible time to have it and uh and then I would like on long interstate drives I would worry so much about that feeling of having a panic attack that I would like have a panic attack about having a panic attack essentially um, and like so that's really like, what, that, like agoraphobia really is it's not that you don't you're, you don't want to get off your couch it's that you're worried about having a panic attack in public and the panic the thought of having a panic attack is yeah sends, sends you panicking so yeah I mean like it's so anything that's traumatic and you're like I don't want to feel like that again that that can be enough to just like uh, uh, completely like do it for you right and uh, and also it doesn't help that obviously like the, like the microaggressions from david like don't stop right like the amount of times he's like well it is my house like and also like the other thing is that like will is just in the worst of situations that you can be right he's in a situation and he gets called out on this directly when he's talking about the fentanyl uh that they have where everyone assumes he's not going to be chill with what's going on that night and he's going to react badly. So it's that thing where like everyone is already holding you under this microscope of how is Will going to react to everything that's going on and expecting that he's not going to react well. And so as he has legitimate concerns and wants to rely on his friends, like he tells Ben about the fentanyl and then um, uh, and then Ben's being like, hey, guess who's looking through your drawers? <laughs> <laughs> to David. Um, and, you know, uh, Ben thinks it's hilarious because obviously there's nothing to be concerned about. But, you know, Will's like, hey, I trusted you. But at the end of the day, no, everyone expects Will to just not not keep his chill, which is also like something when you're in that situation where like you are, you know, have anxiety or it's a stressful situation. The fact that everyone has such low expectations for you just makes it miserable. Like, just miserable. Yeah. The, the, the fact that um, Will is right at the end is just like, you just feel so bad for him because you're like, let's say this is just a weird thing that happened. Life goes back to normal after this. Lots of people are dead, but, you know, life goes back to somewhat normal. A little bit less freeway traffic. Um, yeah. Everybody is dealing with trauma at once. 
And Will, all of a sudden, it's like he has this like compounded trauma associated with um, having children and trusting people and being in social settings, like all the stuff that he he spent so long work on. He's just it's just smashed down. So it's it's really just a tragic. It's well, a I mean, tragic ending. That is the ultimate irony. His paranoia validated is not not a no. good thing. No, I mean, but that's the ultimate irony of all these cults, right? Like the this movie cult or um or real life cults too. Like, you know, all the, all these cults usually suck people in by the notion of providing some level of peace or escape from trauma or stuff like that. And, you know, the majority of the time they end up instilling way more drama or trauma in a in a and drama. <laughs> trauma drama. Um in, in an even larger group of people. So, like, in this, in this you know, fictional example, you have people that were searching for an end to trauma and instead of – and a way to remove that from how they were feeling. And their ultimate solution to end that trauma was, as I'm sure if we saw the news reports the next day, was to greatly traumatize likely at least the entire country if not the entire world, right? Like – the amount of people that would have died, the amount of family members lost, the amount of just recognizing that like your everyday people were were capable of doing something so horrendous is going to traumatize a nation. And like that like that the fact that like all of these cults are based around I'm gonna remove your pain and then they inflict so much pain. And that goes from like, you know, real life tragedy cults, whether it's like a Jonestown or like a wild, wild country or, you know, all of those different cults. And also like, you know, not to go back to the, the, the countrywide cult we're all experiencing, like, you know, there may be a day where a lot of these people wake up and go, oh, shit, my parents died of COVID because uh, I told them not to get vaccinated. That was really stupid. Um, like... We, we are inflicting trauma after trauma in our own country and this idea of like this person's a tough strong man who's going to make you not feel like you wet your diapers anymore. Like it's – it's it, you know, cults don't um, – cults ultimately don't, don't take away trauma. They just uh, transfer and amplify it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think I think we should sort of head towards the end because we're kind of yeah. final points. But um, one thing I want to point out because we're this is this is Spooktober. Um, I want to talk about this as a horror movie for a few minutes, and then yeah. I'll I'll, I'll kind of you know wrap wrap up my thoughts. This is a horror movie that really puts a button on the idea that one gun can be scary. Like we all know, getting stabbed is scary or whatever, but like. The gun is such a powerful object where you're in this very quiet house and then there's explosions of of the weapon. So it happens in the room and then everybody scatters out of the dinner room sort of in in, in slow motion to try and find their, their safety. And like there's this beautiful panic, this horrifying panic where like people are only really like Will is looking out for Kira. But, like, the rest of them can't really, like, look out for anybody. They just have to, like, get the fuck out of the room. Um, And (laughs) the the terror of they get downstairs, they find a nice hiding space for a minute. That hiding space is only as long as it takes for um, Pruitt and David to murder the rest of their friends. Um, They... 
they the gun you can hear it upstairs going off um and you can play the game like count the shells with this movie too like yeah you can you can play the like count to six game with this with this movie uh because pruitt has is, is essentially acting as like an executor for um david and anybody that's you know tough and putting up a fight and he's reloading the weapon over and over again in this like very like uh cult-like manner this possessed manner where he's just like this is a horrifying thing but i've so let go of the idea that this is some sin or something i need to feel sorry about that like i just need to keep pushing forward the plan is the plan is the plan and like I think this also happens in The Sacrament, which is a movie that, like, I have some mixed opinions on. Like, it's it's a very cool movie in certain senses, but in, in some senses, I'm like, you made it really close to Jonestown without making it a Jonestown movie. Like, there's some ethical considerations, I think, to make there. Um, but with that movie also, similarly, is, like, a, a single gun can be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think uh, Karin Kusama also, not in a horror movie, but she also really did a good job at this in Destroyer, where there's there's shootouts in it that I think rival certain scenes in, in Heat, um, not in terms of grandeur, but in terms of a gun is a gun. It's, an, it's, a, it's a thing that fires explosive pieces of metal in a single direction. Like, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, the, the, the horror movies are very often like the slow burn of, of knife killers and people with garrets and, you know, uh, people being uh, defenestrated, you know, like more dramatic sort of stuff, uh, more personal sort of stuff. But like, I think horror movies very often get away from from guns. Um, and it takes a true master, I think, to like remind us that like, these aren't these little toys for John McClane to play with. These are, these are t- terrifying objects. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much. This is an extraordinarily effective horror movie, right? Like tense and scary in in the perfect way. I remember that the first time I watched it, it held up even knowing where all was going because there is so much anxiety in all those little moments. But you're 100 percent right. Once the kind of cudgel comes out and there's that gun and people are dying, um, I'll say how terrifying it is. Like if you're gonna kill yourself, which I would not recommend. I would mostly not recommend, and you're going to use a gun. Also, I would not recommend it. I want to be clear, Peter. Thank you. But, but I want to really, really not recommend pointing it at your gut and shooting. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot think of a worse way to to do that. <laughs> like it will work, probably eventually. Um, uh, but it like it's about as painful as you can get. It's gonna take as uh, as long as you can get. And like I assume the the point like cinematically is the, like the imagery of like her letting go of the thing that like has caused her the most pain, which is like her womb. Yeah, she's shooting it directly in her womb. You know? Yeah. But I, you know, again, your your stomach and your intestines are also there, so that's a consideration when you're ready to kill yourself with a gun. It, but like you feel the pain in that moment of like her pointing it at her womb. Ugh. Uh, yeah, it it hurts. It hurts to watch. It, it's it's one of those moments where um, she turns from threat to someone that you have sympathy and pity for. Um, which I think is it takes a strong filmmaker to have built up a sort of cast of characters that you care enough about that even after they've taken part in a murderous. The murderous uh, attack, a murder, a uh, mass cult killing. Yeah. Um, 
that they uh you feel sympathy for Eden um when she shoots herself in the stomach and like she all all of a sudden turns into just another victim. I I think that's a very takes a very powerful film filmmaking filmmaker and Karin Kusama's up to the up to the task. Yeah, the last thing I'll note is that I think that sometimes Logan Marshall Green gets kind of like short shrift on his acting ability. I think it's partially because he plays very like quiet characters a lot of the time and I think because he looks like Tom Hardy. <laughs> I don't I don't know if like – I think he, there's almost a joke of him being like if you can't afford Tom Hardy, you get Logan Marshall Green. Yeah, I think it's, that joke is, is going away a little bit. But it certainly didn't help that him and – he was in uh, Upgrade when Tom Hardy was in Venom and they're very similar movies. Yeah, and um, I, I will say like if you question how good he is as an actor – and some movies just don't like – like I, I like that Spider-Man Homecoming, but it's not like Logan Marshall Green gets a lot of space. To, oh, he really seemed annoyed at Michael Keaton before he got vaporized. Like you know, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't have a lot. But that's that birthday cake scene where he's like, "Where's Choi? Where's Choi?" Like that is a really good moment of him to be able to really stretch, like and show you that oh, he's not just a he. Like he really is an amazing actor that I hope continues to get. Uh, a lot more opportunities in the future. Actually, looking at his Wikipedia was a little depressing. I, I, I thought he's been in more stuff. Get this guy in more stuff, especially um, in the past five years, because he 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 has like a pretty terrific reel. Um, yeah, like he, and he's hot. Like he's been in good movies. I don't know what you want out of this guy. Only um, thing we can do: kill Tom Hardy. That's the only way to boost his career. Yeah, uh, he's also uh, been in a lot of bad movies. Maybe that's maybe he doesn't have a good agent. Um, maybe not. Also, uh, he was on uh, King Cast, which I was really excited about because they were talking about my favorite book uh, that Stephen King ever did, The Long Walk. And I was super annoyed. I had to turn it off because he clearly hadn't read the book in five years. And and but he also is like Logan Marshall Green's guesting on the on the uh, show and uh, he kept getting a bunch of stuff wrong and everyone kept correcting him and it just it, like I wasn't angry at anyone I just it was so awkward that I had to turn it off and that bothered me so yeah, yeah that, sounds, you. that sounds pretty awkward yeah but kind of like if someone were to get everyone's names wrong 20 times uh, as they discuss a movie they theoretically just watched and have the, Wikip- <laughs> and have the Wikipedia page open for yeah I actually feel like I kind of don't need to do f- yeah I got a lot of thoughts. I got a lot of first thoughts that go into my middle thoughts. I'm at my final thoughts. I just think the movie's terrifying as hell because it uh, encapsulates what generalized anxiety is and how alienating it can be even from people that uh, love you. And uh, my my uh, hope is that um, during Spooktober, we like to talk about why we love horror. But one of the reasons that I love horror is that, like, as someone who's generally anxious, horror lets me, like, take a great deal of control of my anxiety. And it, and, and, and it lets me play with it, plays with my anxiety in a way that's, like, not usually not malicious. Like, that's kind of why people talk about hating jump scares. Because jump scares are just, like, you're just activating my natural bodily function of wanting <laughs> shitting my pants. Um, yeah, it's, it's the old analogy. Like, if you go up uh, right in front of my face and clap your hands, I'm going to jump. Two, I'm not going to be like, oh, what an artist. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. But this movie's ability to avoid jump scares and do these slow burn scares uh, amidst a great character drama where like when people get a moment alone together, I get excited because I'm like, well, how do Gina and Will get along? Like, how do yeah. Gina, how, how does, how does Will get along with Kira, you know, now that like he's clearly dropped her into a very uncomfortable evening it, like th- those sort of character dynamics are so well built so yeah it's kind of my final thought is that like one of the things that i love about horror movies is how they play with yeah. my anxiety and this is a movie entirely about that and with a very sympathetic pr- protagonist who's experiencing like what a lot of us experience yeah if you skip this one because it seemed kind of samey uh and it, you know now's the time it's early enough in spooktober peter where we can still hit some hard wrecks so add this to your list uh, but what I will say is next week, uh, we're going to – it's kind of a similar movie. It is about people walking into a house. <laughs> it involves Not, houses. There's no apps before things get really weird. And uh, people oh don't God. know if they Targo should – Targo needed to put some charcuterie out. Stat. I know. I mean, as far as we know, there's no kitchen. It is the most awkward house in the world. But yeah, Peter <laughs> – Peter and I, um, Peter and I decided to. We've seen Manos. I've actually seen seen three iterations of riffing on Manos because I've seen the Rift Tracks version, I've seen the Mister Fantasy Thousand version, uh, Rift Tracks Live, and then I, I saw the Cinematic Titanic Live version as well. Uh, all of them were funny, but I it actually the thing I've always said about Manos is that I think there's a really creepy underbelly to a very poorly made movie. And so Peter and I wanted a chance, especially with that new Blu-ray that they came out that kind of remasters it and makes it look less like, um, you know, a um, a horrible home movie. Like, is there something here that's worth digesting just as a, a cinematic curiosity besides just the uh, one of the contenders for the worst movie of all time? So we're excited to talk about it from that perspective, although I'm sure we will still have – Plenty of jokes because it's a silly movie um, that was made for silly reasons. So until then, Peter, you don't have to put on the red light. Um. Peter, <laughs> you don't have to put on the red light. All right. I won't murder an entire dinner party. Okay. All night right, Sting. <laughs> Sting talks you out of it. Loves tantric sex and not having his friends murdered at dinner parties. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the 
show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) 